Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. And I want to begin this episode with an apology. This feed has been way too quiet over the past couple of months. Um, I've been away a couple of times. Um, I've been doing lots of cover also for my Navara colleagues when they've been on their well and breaks. August is a is a pretty difficult time um, for extra projects. Um, I am preparing a new season, though, which I hope you'll all find interesting. Um, it will be on migration and looking at the reality behind small boats and asylum, something we've heard a lot about this summer. And I have to say something we've heard a lot of nonsense about this summer, not least from Tory politicians and our Home Secretary. So in the series, um, I want to look at the reality of small boats and asylum, also go on to some broader issues, the actual impact of, of immigration on living standards. And I think most importantly, this is what I often want to focus on in these podcasts, looking at alternatives. What might a humane migration system actually look like? It's a question I've often found you know, quite difficult to work out. So I'm going to speak to some really expert guests um, and try and find an answer to that i've already got lots of great people lined up i'll be launching it in the next few weeks so look out for that for now though i have something very different to tide you over it's on a topic that's been at the forefront of my mind throughout this record-breaking summer climate change And in particular, this podcast is a response to one talking point I've heard again and again from those who seem to want the UK to drag its heels on climate action. I wonder when we'll see them protest outside the Chinese embassy because China is still building coal-fired power stations, as we've talked about on the programme in recent weeks. Um, But nobody seems to mind about that in the environmental movement. Who thinks Sunak's house invasion was a good idea? Anyone? What team do you guys work in? Are you press? Marketing, who, who's the gigabrain that invented that idea today? And also, why don't you do it in China? Go to President Xi Jinping's house. Do you think you get the same reception? That was Ian Dale on Good Morning Britain. And then a journalist at GB News, whose name I don't know, who were both responding to Greenpeace dropping a banner from Rishi Sunak's house while he was on holiday. They were opposing him giving licenses for new oil and gas fields in the North Sea. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that Dale and the guy from GB News were making a stupid point that activists who did the Greenpeace stunt are citizens of the UK who want to pressure their own government to improve its record on climate. It would seem rather odd for them to instead get on a flight to Beijing and presumably get arrested protesting President Xi. This is not a credible argument which is being made. But as with many of even the most boneheaded of talking points, there is a small kernel of truth within it. And that's because when it comes to climate change, what happens in China will be much more important than what happens in the UK. China accounts for 18% of the world's population, one-fifth of global GDP, and currently one-third of global carbon emissions. The corresponding figures for the UK are 0.8, 2.3, and 1%. So 0.8% of the world's population, 2.3% of GDP and 1% of emissions. When it comes to climate change and the overall picture, we are small fry. Of course, that's not an excuse for inaction. There are many small and medium-sized countries who may look insignificant on their own, um, but we do all need to be taking action. Otherwise, we will be heading towards catastrophe. But, you know, obviously, when it comes to the future of the world, decisions made in Beijing are more important than decisions in Westminster. And so I thought I'd take that challenge seriously. Let's talk about China's actual record when it comes to climate policy. Is China the climate villain that it's sometimes made out to be and that it was made out to be in those clips? 
Or will the planet be saved by responsible decisions made at the top of the Chinese Communist Party? To try and answer that question, um, I spoke to Sam Giel, who is CEO at the environmental NGO China Dialogue and an associate fellow at Chatham House. Sam Gill, welcome to Crash Course. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, the future of the planet um, and China's impact on that. To begin, though, um, can I get you to talk a bit about yourself? So you're CEO at China Dialogue. Um, what is China Dialogue? What do our audience need to know? China Dialogue is a non-profit, fully independent environmental journalism platform focused on all issues, climate change and environment, with a special focus on China. We publish in English and Chinese, publish Chinese voices on China's environmental crisis, global voices on global environmental issues. Um, and we also actually publish across a network of four websites across some eight languages, but you know, principally on all issues around sort of global sustainability challenges and how to search for joint solutions. Yeah, and I suppose China Dialogue, the name sort of gives away the idea y you want to sort of foster cooperation between China and and the West when it comes to the environment. Is that sort of a reasonable we approximation? Want to, we want to get past the impasse where in Western countries, people tend to, to use China as an excuse for inaction to say, you know, why should we do anything about climate change if China's opening have many coal-fired power stations a week? In the Chinese context, talking about environmental issues isn't necessarily sensitive, but talking about the international dimension gets you accused of pointing the finger at China or trying to dictate the terms of China's development. And we think you have to get past that kind of impasse if you're going to search for joint solutions on what is clearly of sort of shared interest to China and the rest of the world, which is human survival on the planet. And so are you for of, you know, so you're speaking to both Chinese and Western audiences, I presume. Um, so are you read in China as sort of a, a proxy for the West and read in the West as a proxy for China? Is that is there an element of that? I hope not, um, but we can be misperceived that way in some contexts. I think we're quite careful to try to bring out Chinese voices on China's environmental crisis so that we can sort of avoid that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that we stake out an increasingly unpopular position, which is to say that you need to have fully independent um, voices on these issues to have a solid bedrock uh, in fact um, a shared basis in fact on which you can have a constructive dialogue then yeah we're definitely still kind of holding the torch for greater cooperation between China and the rest of the world um, and, you know I don't think cooperation exists to the um, you know I don't think co cooperation and competition for example are mutually exclusive and I also you know don't really hold a particular position on where we're going with geopolitical conflict between China and the rest of the world but I do think fundamentally you need to have avenues for engagement on climate change um, with the world's largest emitter by volume. And just, um, I suppose, fully independent to cash that out. I mean, at my other job at Navarra, we say fully independent because it's it's funded by the viewers. Um, I suppose we can say crash course, it's fully independent because it's funded by the listeners on Patreon. I mean, how do you cash that out? Who are you independent from? How are you funded? That kind of thing. We're fully independent from government. We're funded by philanthropy, uh, principally sort of climate foundations. Um, we're a charity uh, registered in the UK. We've got our headquarters in the UK and a network of regional editors and and writers around the world. Let's get into the meat of it. Is China a hero or villain when it comes to climate change? I think they're neither. And that sort of does get to the to the problem, I guess, in the conversation that it is become such a sort of polarized topic and, uh, and, and a weapon that's used on both sides that it makes it difficult to really sort of get through this and to say, well, you know, China 
exists as both, um, uh, according to the different framings that you want to use. China is both the world's largest carbon emitter by volume um, and also the largest financier of low carbon technologies that are needed for the transition. They're the largest deployer of solar PV modules. They're the largest um, deployer of, um, of batteries to the world for the EV transition. If you're going to have any kind of low carbon transition at this point anyway, um, it's going to involve a huge amount of Chinese finance and technology and expertise. Um, at the same time as China is facing, you know, desperately uh, difficult environmental crisis at home beyond climate. Um, there's, you know, chronic problems with water scarcity, with water pollution, with air pollution, with soil pollution. Um, you know, as a result of really breakneck growth over the past uh, few decades. So it's, you know, it's both in the throes of kind of environmental crisis and also, you know, according to certain estimations, a, you know, a leader in the low carbon transition. So, you know, grappling with all of that um, is, you know, it's complicated and, and requires sort of going beyond uh, that, that type of um, uh, Manichaean vision, I suppose. And yeah, so I gathered some, some bullet points for a sort of uh, an initial stab at this question. So I've got in terms of ranking, as you say, China is the world's biggest emitter, and that's by a long way. Um, so double the US annually when it comes to carbon emissions. And China produces a third of the world's greenhouse gases. So clearly very significant. Um, on a per capita basis, obviously, it's more mid ranking. Um, so it comes in at 41. So the Chinese per capita emissions, I was going to say, that, you know, the average Chinese person is, is 41 from some sort of ranking compared Which to everyone else. Which is pretty much the OECD average, actually. They kind of sit alongside most Europeans, if you were to average it out. And then, so it's half of that of the US mm -hmm. um, and a little bit above the UK. So they're 7.4 tonnes, we're 5.4 tonnes. And the reason they emit more than the UK is mainly um, because they're still reliant on coal. We have shifted not to renewables on mass, we have got some renewables, but as a country, we've shifted on mass to gas-powered um, fossil fuel production. They're still on coal. Two-thirds of China's electricity supply comes from coal. Um, China burns more coal every year than the rest of the world combined, and it's still building more coal power stations. So that was my villainy. Those were my villainy bullet points. Um, in terms of heroism, um, they're obviously, as you say, the global powerhouse when it comes to renewables. Um, China is adding renewable projects to the grid as fast as the rest of the world combined. Um, so that means around 50% of all global renewable capacity is being built in China. So that's from the International Energy Agency. And when, when we're talking about supply, it will be even higher um, because they export the goods that help other countries build out renewable power. China produces 75% of the world's solar panels, 60% of the core components of wind turbines. 16% of energy in China is from renewables, but most of that is from hydro. So hydropower, so big dams. And our audience might have heard of the Free Gorges Dam. Pledges, peak emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. So a lot is going on in, in, in the China space when it comes to climate, producing most of the world's renewables, also burning most of the world's coal. And um, let's start on this issue of coal, um, because as you say, when people say, the problem is China. Why are you talking about Rishi Sunak? Why are you talking about what we're doing? They're still building coal power plants. And people might look at that and think that is unacceptable in 2023 to still be building new coal power plants. I mean, what's your what's your take on that? Why is that going on? Can that be justified? I mean, China has to move away from, uh, from coal uh, for its uh, electricity supply. 
Um, but it's, that's quite widely understood across China um, in terms of its central planning. And maybe we'll talk more about sort of how climate policy plays out and kind of what that looks like and how it's underpinned. But sort of, I, I suppose, briefly on what that coal power looks like today, um, there is increasingly um, a sort of push and pull between the more um, central government-driven edict to move away from coal, to move towards renewables and um, and a, a less coal-dependent electricity mix. And often um, local uh, governments and provinces that tend to be very reliant on these quite traditional forms of um, economic growth sort of stoking. Um, and so you get this push and pull between central and local, and that often accounts for these sort of moments where you'll see, for example, provinces going ahead and uh, clearing the permits for a whole bunch of new coal-fired power stations and then the central government kind of sweeping in a month later or whatever and closing them down in the name of of a kind of bigger ecological civilization initiative and so on. So so this it's a bit of a um, of a sort of managed um, and strange transition moment. The other thing to bear in mind is that a lot of these coal-fired power stations running across China are not running at full utilization, which sounds quite a technical point, but it's quite it's kind of important to understand that these are not necessarily profitable projects. They tend to be kept online as a way to back up power in the process of a kind of transition. In Europe and the United States, with the gas sector, there's a lot of talk about how it functions as a so-called bridge fuel, um, so that as you bring more renewables online, um, you keep gas online as well to um, to kind of keep a base load power or to keep peaking power. There's sort of different ways of thinking about the, the electricity mix. But essentially, you kind of... Um, don't want to immediately move towards um, a um, electricity system more characterized by intermittency, where you're going to need more storage online that doesn't necessarily exist yet or isn't necessarily integrated into a smarter grid infrastructure. In the Chinese context, they're also tr sort of trying to make that move, but they don't have the gas in the same way. And gas isn't going to be used in the same fashion, at least according to most sort of analysts. What most Chinese energy planners would want to see is coal continuing to... to um, uh, keep some chunk of that electricity mix, probably indefinitely with carbon capture and storage. So m many of these coal-powered plants are going to stay online with increasingly low utilisation. In some cases, newer, larger, more efficient ones are going to be built in place of the smaller ones. So you'll see coal plants opening, you'll see a kind of reorienting of where they're placed, you'll see carbon capture and storage. It's not perfect, of course, you know, um, you know, the, the better option would be to move to an entirely smart grid renewable energy system. And, you know, I would encourage that. But to the extent that you see occasional headlines about new coal um, plants being built, the more important thing is really um, how are these plants being utilised? What's the overall energy mix? Is it going up or, up or down in terms of coal? Um, where are the sort of power sector reforms and so on needed to bring more renewables online? Um, what's the um, what are the kind of economic incentives that work in the grid? And that gets more complicated. It's, it's not to excuse it to say that they should they shouldn't go faster and don't need to go fast. They do, um, but it's not as simple as just um, China sort of wedded to coal and, and not moving away from it. It's it's much more that there's a quite a complicated balancing act around growth security of supply, vested interests, and all of the rest. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's not like the two fingers up to their climate pledges that some people might be reading it as, as abroad. I, I really don't think it is. And I think the reason that we should not regard it as such is, is partly because of the sort of um, scale and seriousness with which the party state seems to have approached its aforementioned goals. You mentioned that the 
2030 peaking target and the 2060 uh, carbon neutrality target, they actually seem to be really taken very seriously. Um, you know, it's worth thinking about that, um, where those goals came out of. They were um, announced by Xi Jinping at the UN General Assembly in September 2020. Um that means they were a unilateral statement on the world stage. This wasn't part of a joint agreement, um, as with, say, the um, pledge with Obama in 2014 before the Paris Agreement. Um, and, you know, they were made on the world stage and irre irrevocably associated with Xi Jinping's own kind of political legacy as a result. Um, they weren't widely trailed. People didn't know he was going to announce this, even within the environmental bureaucracy in China, as far as I can understand. And they mean a lot in terms of the scale of... Um, shift that that's going to require. Not the peaking target of 2030 so much, that's quite attainable. And, you know, you probably could have come in sooner on that, and maybe China will come in sooner on that. But the 2060 peaking, um, 2060 carbon neutrality target, if you really sort of game it out in terms of the kinds of transition that means for the Chinese economy, it's massive. And quite, it, it really sends a huge policy signal. And in the intervening years, we've seen a huge amount of sort of legislative work across the Chinese system in terms of putting in the kind of plans that then flesh out that um, that overall pledge into um, policy making, and then the implementation measures and so on that go with that, which is a whole suite of measures from, you know, a lot of top-down command and control stuff, but also kind of market mechanisms and carbon market and so on that are really sort of gearing towards um, what's known as the dual carbon goals. So it's it's become a big part of China's um, internal policy making. Why I would say because this is really something that is understood within China to be within the country's national self-interest, um, and we can talk more about what, why that is. And I, I suppose that's related to China's climate vulnerability. I just want to swing back to or, or, or move back to the issue of coal for one second because you're talking about those dual 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 carbon targets, or is that yeah, the dual phrase? carbon goals. Yeah, dual yep. carbon goals. Sorry. So one of them is peaking carbon emissions in 2030. One of them is net zero emissions by 2060. So in the UK, it's 2050. There, it's 2060. Um, I got a quote from Xi Jinping, and which I think is very explanatory of the the coal issue. Um, so he said at the National Party Congress, I think it was last year, the government will aim to reach peak carbon emissions in a quote well planned and phased way, in line with the principle of building the new before discarding the old. So it's, instead of saying we're going to wind down coal while building up renewables, he's saying we're going to build up renewables. And only once we've really built them up to such a degree that we don't have any fear of of blackouts because of intermittency, that's when we will decommission the coal. And until then, if we need to build some more coal as backup or more coal power plants as backup, we we will. And that speaks very explicitly to the um, the kind of push and pull dynamic I was describing in the autumn winter of 2021. There were um, blackouts across um, uh, China that were widely blamed on. In a, possibly wrongly, but were widely blamed among Chinese kind of officialdom and public on shifting too fast um, um, away from coal and not having that kind of um, obsolescence built in, um, which led to some pushback from parts of the system saying, you need to, yeah, you need to build the new before, you know, in this sort of phased process. Um, and there's some sense to, I guess, the idea of maintaining security of supply. Of course, there's different ways to do that. And energy security, you know, it's a broader issue that you can address through multiple technologies. I would argue that actually energy security in China is strengthened through renewables and electrification more broadly. Um, and I think Chinese planners probably see that as well. 
Um, but yeah, there was then this sort of countervailing kind of discourse saying you shouldn't um, just operate through these kind of so-called campaign style targets to just um, start, you know, shutting down coal plants. You need to kind of build up the supply, build up security of supply, um, stability and the rest of it. And that's why, so I suppose in, in this country, it'd be difficult. It's a difficult sell to say to, you know, electricity companies, please build a coal power station as backup, which might end up a stranded asset. So you might not be able to keep making a profit on this over 30 years. And we're only going to use it when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. They'll say, well, that's not a good investment for us. But I think it's the case that all the new coal power plants in China are done by the state-owned companies, which means that if it turns out to be a stranded asset that makes a loss in the long term, you know, so be it the broader interests of the nation or what's coming first here. Arguably, yes. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a state capitalist system with, you know, a number of different profit incentives and so on at work. However, yeah, there isn't the same kind of um, the same market logics at work. Um, and there's also, as I mentioned, sort of a different attitude towards coal in general, which um, we've, you know, when, when we still relied on uh, coal more extensively, um, certainly in the UK and, in, and as we still do to, to an extent in Europe, um, it's described as baseload power, which means it doesn't really ramp up and down. It's just there's a, a certain sort of sliver of it in the, in the energy mix. Chinese energy planners increasingly and rather sort of unusually to Westerners tend to think of it as something that can actually be peaked up and down through retrofitting and essentially used as backup. This sounds a little bit obscure, but it's really relevant when you're looking at the way that um, provinces, particularly in the West and Southwest, the last few months have been impacted by drought. It's really, you know, unfortunately exacerbated by climate change, really extensive and world historic droughts last summer and this summer um, uh, in the Southwest, in Sichuan, in Chongqing. Um, those are very hydro dependent provinces. So just over the last quarter, I think hydro. Um, power production in Sichuan was down like 20% or something. So in those cases, then again, you're going to need ramping up of coal. So there's a there's this very difficult kind of uh, uh, balancing effect that's needed to, to keep some coal online. Yes, you've got this unfortunate situation where climate change causes droughts. Droughts means that hydropower doesn't work so well because the rivers aren't flowing and therefore China turns to coal to provide the electricity where hydro is, is providing less of it. I suppose it's important to note as well, I assume, I'm not an expert on this, but one would imagine that sort of Thatcher's move away from coal was easier because we had North Sea oil and gas and there is no equivalent in China really, right? So they've got shed loads of coal, but they have to, they're, they're massive importers when it comes to both oil and gas, which is why they're so committed to yeah. coal as the backup power because they, they sort of value energy security above all else. It's plentiful within China's borders. It's cheap if you don't, um, if you don't internalize the um, human and uh, environmental costs of, um, of coal production. Is there also an element of, you know, like in, in America, we'd say, you know, potentially there is some sort of strategic planning whereby they're still using coal as a baseload form of energy. But also there's just this political economy where you've got, say, Joe Manchin, who's funded by loads of coal lobby groups, who then blocks any legislation which will wind down coal. Is there the similar, you know, is, is there a similar coal lobby which wants to keep coal purely because they're profiting from it in China? Or does that not really make sense in a in a communist system or a communist the Chinese version of communism system. It it does no, it does make sense. There is the equivalent. Um, China has has politics. You know, it's not democratic, but it has um, it has factional politics. It has vested interests. It has you know powerful state-owned um, industries, um, and it has provinces that are very reliant on um, coal for for revenue. Um, 
a lot of the growth that was unleashed in the so-called reform era since 1980 was really achieved through a lot of devolution to the local areas, allowing them essentially to get into quite collusive relationships with enterprise. Um, in many cases, it means there's very powerful alliances of, of money and power at the local level. So a lot of that's local level, but also at elite level as well. There are, there are powerful interests. Um, it, as a result, Governance can be quite fragmented. Decisions can be, you know, decisions are made in very opaque ways, um, according to sort of a balance between different factions and lobbies and interests. Um, that may be less the case, however, in the last sort of 10 years or so under Xi Jinping, um, who has consolidated quite a powerful power center around himself in the party. This was sort of truer a decade ago. Um, but it's still the case that there's, there's powerful provinces, there's powerful lobbies, and there's just... Um, a powerful need also to think about the, you know, what people call in the, certainly in the sort of Western and global South context, the just transition. So how do you actually manage the, um, the you know, social uh, costs and, uh, and effects of, you know, making unemployed people in the steel sector, in the, um, in the coal sector and aluminium smelting and all these highly energy intensive polluting industries that, um, you know, became so uh, such strong drivers of growth during the past few decades. China wants to move towards higher quality, slower growth, away from that kind of energy intensive, low value manufacturing towards innovation and services. But what do you do with, you know, the, that um, sort of industrial working class and so on? It's a really, you know, difficult question as anywhere else. Um, and sort of managing that, reskilling, all of those kind of difficult things are as difficult in China as anywhere else, and they're as political as anywhere else. And so I suppose you've got those you've got those challenges, which, you know, quite similar to, to many other countries, to be honest, as well. The political system, I suppose, is where it's it's so different in China compared to here. And I suppose in terms of national policy, so how does national policy get made? And is that very much just whatever Xi Jinping thinks goes? And I suppose on, on that level, is it... Does, does if you know China emits thirty percent of the world's or a third of the world's carbon emissions? Is there one guy in control of a third of the world's carbon emissions? Are we are we that dependent on this one guy because he's centralised so much power, or is that a bit of a caricature of Chinese politics? It's I think it's a, it's at once true in some sense and 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 not really when you look at the kind of vast juggernaut that that China's system is and how it's really governed according to these kind of big. A combination of, I guess, big centralized, integrated, long-term plans and different, you know, balancing of different factional whims and uh, and the rest. Um, so, and and just the you know the way that technological and economic forces kind of play themselves out through through history and through um, through political economy. So, I suppose you know the things to bear in mind are yes, at the at the very um, elite level within China's party state, it's very opaque. No, nobody knows what. Xi Jinping thinks what, what he really cares about in terms of climate change or, or environmental policy or the rest. As far as I can tell, you can read his speeches, you can read his many pronouncements, um, and they will tell you a lot about how China's governed. In fact, I would say to most people who are interested in China, do read its official papers and policies and so on. You learn a lot. Um, it does does actually tell you a lot about um, what the party state wants, what government wants. There's, there's actually a lot you can divine from it, even if the language sometimes seems a bit sort of florid or strange or kind of turgid at points. Um, then in terms of actually how these big policies are made, there's, there's a range of different kind of temporal scales, I guess. There's things like five-year plans, which are very important in terms of the way the economy is managed, 
has been since um, you know the 1950s uh, with a few breaks. Um, you know, in the current five-year plans, what you see is a lot of quite aggressive targeting of um, a low-carbon transition. Essentially, increasingly quite high targets for installation of of solar PV, of um, you know uh, targets around deployment of electric vehicles, um, of other kind of so-called new infrastructure projects. Essentially, targeting um, industrial policy to move away from these sort of traditional drivers of growth towards these um, technologies that China wants not only to deploy at home, but to become the leading exporter around the world. And you can see this playing out really over the last 15 years or so that, you know, the central party state took quite a long term bet on becoming the leading supplier of those technologies. And also, as you know, in the wake of the financial crisis in um, in the West, um, in creating a domestic market that could kind of shore up their own um uh, their own production capacity that initially actually developed as um, as exporters. So, you know, if you look at the solar PV industry, for example, a lot of it was led by uh, private firms, many of them exporting to Germany. Germany had uh, feed-in tariffs since the early 2000s that um, really um, incentivized that market to take off. Um, then in 2008, all well, those order books dried up. Um, the, um, the market in general sort of... Uh, dried up for actually what was quite a large production base now that existed in China. And so the Chinese policy kind of um, geared up to create a domestic market. So this is to say there are shorter term um, uh, policy tools that can be used quite quickly to try to shift the kind of political economy, in this case, very successfully to create subsidies, other kinds of um, uh, uh, signals that would then create a domestic market for renewables. And it really took off and and then kind of unleashed its own economic and technological dynamics that have brought down the price of solar and wind and, and electric vehicles enormously. I mean, my personal sense of what made, for example, the Paris Agreement possible, maybe we'll talk more about sort of UN climate process and so on, um, in 2015 was that shift in the real economy that had taken place over the, the years previous. And that's largely thanks to the scale of production in China, the fact that that unleashes what... Um, sort of innovation theories called learning curve effects. Um, you get essentially competition between large state-owned firms just driving down the price gradually um, to the point that, you know, it's a was really a public good for, for, for the world that they were now able to make those kind of diplomatic pros, um, progress, having essentially greased the skids by, um, uh, by creating a kind of technological level playing field essentially between in what you know the previous incumbent technologies and new technologies like uh, like solar pv i suppose it w would it be fair to say that you know the only reason why countries sort of agreed that net zero by 2050 was even plausible is because huge state-owned chinese companies dramatically reduced the price of the technology required to do it so dramatically reduced the price of solar panels and dramatically reduced the price of of wind turbines i think i think it, it played a really massive and sort of under-discussed role as a protagonist in what then became a story, and, you know, rightly also was a story about diplomacy and, you know, the particular world leaders who were around at the time. You know, when you think about the Paris Agreement, you think about net zero targets and so on, a lot of it was was also about technological forces that were unleashed in that in that same period. And I think a lot of that comes down to these big, big uh, Chinese firms. And is an authoritarian political system a help or a hindrance when it comes to tackling climate change? I suppose you know, the hindrance, I assume, we don't see just stop oil protesters sort of 
in Beijing stopping major cultural events. Um, the help, I suppose, is if you have got a political leader who does seem somewhat committed to climate action, they can overcome domestic interest groups more effectively than they might do in, in the West. I mean, what's your take on that question? I think it's genuinely um, complicated um, question that to me, to me, I do not think that an authoritarian system necessarily means, for example, you know, as I mentioned, that you do away with politics. Um, <laughs> politics uh, is going to exist and local opposition, um, all kinds of resistance across every level of whether it's you know, policy resistance within a system, whether it's local resistance to decisions that were made without people having a proper stake in them, those are going to exist in any political system. I think the systems that are more resilient um, and more able to um, uh, to absorb those kinds of shocks and remain sustainable tend to be more liberal and more open. And as a result, you know, it's a fairly traditional kind of liberal argument. I think you do need to have space for consultation, for public participation, you need to have transparency, accountability, these kinds of systems in order to prevent these kind of shocks barreling out of hand and undermining the, the, the broader resilience of the system. Having said that, I don't think any political system at the moment has a particularly great claim on climate leadership or on really being able to manage these impossibly difficult kind of long-term problems. Um, what I would say is that the moment really when, or the, the kind of period in which um, environmental issues and thinking about sustainable development and thinking about the sort of challenge to the so-called pollute first, clean up later model of development that China pursued in since the 1980s, really, until, uh, you know, until the sort of past decade. The people who are really challenging that were the people who were also trying to um, trying to get more space for civil society in China. Um, and that sort of environmental civil society movement in China it was also a movement for greater um, freedom of speech and association and uh, and for greater kind of essentially safe for people in uh, in decisions that are critical for their you know for their own lives and livelihoods and so on and it was very allied with other you know movements that sort of want uh, i guess a greater safer people and a greater kind of democratic control of um, of their economy um, so I don't tend to see it so black and white, I suppose, between authoritarian and um, and, and liberal systems, because also, like I say, we, it's been a general collective action failure um, globally. Um, and a, a lot of this sort of in the end transcends either brand of um, state capitalism or, or more neoliberal sort of market capitalism in both cases there's a similar market logic and similar kind of uh, economic logic that has been you know driving the um uh, the destruction of the planet that we need to shift i suppose there are some and especially on the issue of climate where there are some clear defects to say the liberal or neoliberal democratic model which china has less of so i mean let's use the usa as the example the second biggest emitter in the world so obviously what happens there matters a lot to the rest of us just as it does and what happens in china so there you've got the short-term interest of well, not even two-year electoral cycles. You've got elections every two years. Um, very difficult to think into the long term. Very difficult to have sort of policy continuity because, yeah, Joe Biden might be talking a good talk on climate, but then in a year's time, you might have Donald Trump who doesn't even believe climate change exists. Um, and also, you know, the huge power of corporations over politics there, you know, both because of, of how they fund political parties and how they fund media means that it is 
difficult to have sort of like a, a central rational bureaucracy having the kind of power and interest to sort of say what is in the country's best interests over the next 20 or 30 years. But it seems very difficult for a government in the United States to sort of ask that question, what is in the country's best interest over the next 20 and 30 years and how do we make it happen? China seems much better placed to ask that question and implement it successfully than does the United States, which would be an argument, you know, to say, well, when it comes to climate change, actually, authoritarianism might not be all that bad, as long as you've got, you know, rational, technocratic, sensible people um, who who have this, you know, huge, enormous amount of power. Mm. No, I mean, to indulge that argument further, I guess, it has been difficult, for example, for, you know, in China-US agreements at the UN level around climate, for China to take the US that seriously because of its record of essentially flip-flopping on sort of big agreements and pledges and so on due to its electoral cycles. Um, you know, Obama bet big on being able to use executive authority to get past, you know, his, current, his problems with Congress and then that was able to be reversed. Um, so the the kind of credibility of any of any world leader is weakened by um, by democratic systems if they're so hyper-polarized around the issue of climate change as they have been in the United States. And I guess in the US, part of the problem then is that there isn't a base consensus around the idea that um, you know climate action is in the country's national self-interest, which there is in China. Now, um, is that because it's a more authoritarian system? I don't know. I'm not actually sure that, that, that that's the only thing that accounts for it. Um, as I mentioned, you know, I do also just, I, I think there is an extent to which there are, um, there's an elite consensus in China that um, that acting on climate is in national self-interest. I do think that's partly because of a kind of technocratic um, understanding that China faces enormous vulnerabilities and costs associated with climate change. You know, China's chronically water scarce in the north, faces, you know, enormous problems with um, uh, with drought, huge blood, uh, problems with flooding in the south. Actually, just in the last month in, in, around Beijing, it's really tragic, like um, absolutely um, devastating floods, which of course are the kind of the flip side of droughts when you have you know, prolonged drought, makes you much more prone to flooding, in this case from a tropical cyclone. Tropical cyclone activity becomes um, more uh, more frequent and more damaging in the context of, uh, of a warming climate. So all of these sorts of effects, clearly I think it's well understood that China will face increasing costs from a warming climate. But I also think there's some quite basic political economy drivers that aren't just about technocratic understanding that we need to sort of move away from, um, uh, move away from this sort of looming problem and much more about technology leadership trying to get ahead in you know the the next generation of technologies trying to be the leading supplier of the technologies needed for a carbon constrained world it's also about energy security so you know china as it stands today is still fairly dependent on the imports of fossil fuels uh through the world's sea lanes um there's a very famous um choke point called the strait called the um uh strait of malacca uh which is um, patrolled by the U.S. Navy's Seventh Fleet, 
Chinese security planners have been worried about their strategic choke point since at least the 90s. Where is it, sorry? The Strait of Malacca? Um, it's, it's near Singapore. Right. Um, and it, um, you know, some 90% of the world's trade or something gets gets funneled through there. Um, it's really important for uh, for, for China's uh, seaborne sort of imports, or at least it was, and China made a, uh, you know, a concerted effort over the past, you know, 20 years or so of kind of long-term strategic planning to make sure that there was a diversity of, um, of sources of import. Now, you do that partly through building new ports like Gwadar in Pakistan. You do that in part through new pipelines. Um, you know, they're trying to build a pipeline through Russia, another one through Myanmar. The best way actually to, to diversify, it turned out, was by electrifying and, and moving towards renewables um, because actually also the costs keep coming down. So not only are you avoiding the volatile pricing associated with imported fossil fuels and all of the geopolitical entanglements and the worry about strategic planning, but you've also got a really secure and increasingly cheap supply that's plentiful. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a security um, aspect to this. The other thing then to think about on the, on the US side as the countervailing argument is that actually the US has, it turns out, very quickly, and maybe this is entirely dra uh, driven by increasing competition, national security, securitized kind of competition, is the US has managed to suddenly push very recently and very aggressively towards industrial policy on climate action through the Inflation Reduction Act, Suddenly, we're seeing huge new sort of subsidies and market signals in favor of um, the buildup of you know, renewable energy industries and the rest. That can happen even with you know, a Congress that isn't necessarily 100% supportive, certainly with a population that still, you know, is- Well, it only just happened, right? So, I mean, it was, right. it was, it could have quite possibly been that, so the Inflation Reduction Act, which is what gives these huge subsidies to renewable energy production, it was only at the last minute that Joe Manchin came around and said, "Okay, as long as you're not as long as you're not punishing coal, I'm happy to flood the renewable sector with loads of money." Yeah. So basically, said, "We're coal can keep doing what it's doing." It's actually a similar strategy to China, right? Which is to say, it's too difficult to put too many controls on fossil fuel production. But what we are going to do is throw loads of money at the alternative, and hopefully, the alternative will become cheaper soon, and then we won't actually have to face down the coal industry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and driven in both sides by an increasing kind of strategic competition over, um, you know, what's increasingly bifurcated global supply chains, or at least um, aspirationally want to be bifurcated global supply chains. At this point, actually, very integrated. And so let's let's talk about that issue of competition. I mean, I know, I suppose I know a bit more maybe about the American side than I do about the Chinese side. And I know when when Adam Tu sort of writes about sort of biodynamics and the Inflation Reduction Act and all of this agenda, he said, the reason you can get a coalition behind industrial policy in the United States is partly because of a recognition of the importance of climate change, but it's more a recognition of there being industrial competition with China. So they want to make sure when it comes to whatever energy system we move to in the future, we want to be producing this at home. We want a homegrown renewable energy industry, because if we don't do it, China's going to monopolize it and that's going to give them loads of geopolitical influence and we're going to be dependent on them. So it seems in a way that Biden's agenda, Biden's relatively green agenda has been helped by the Chinese threat. I don't know if you can say the same thing from the other perspective. Is there any sense in which Xi Jinping recognizes that going, you know, investing really, really heavily in renewables is a way to one up the United States in whatever sort of form of geopolitical competition we move into in the next couple of decades? 
Yeah, I suspect it's increasingly viewed in this uh, competitive way on both both sides. I don't think there's much doubt that um, we're gearing up for that. And I and I certainly agree with that analysis that U.S. Um, bullishness on this on the renewable energy sector and the rest is really driven by a kind of national security um, concerns and the idea that this is an area of kind of existential competition for the United States and so on. It doesn't seem that it's driven by any kind of altruism, but, you know, n- neither is it on the um, on the Chinese sides. Um, in, in both cases, there's some quite kind of cold calculating logic. And, you know, I think there's an extent to which this should just be embraced if competition does continue to drive down prices, if it continues to sort of scale up the um, industrial enthusiasm for for the shift away from these sort of incumbent industries, then great. Um, I do think that um, it's going to run into problems because as it currently stands, we don't have the possibility of really um, uh, extricating these two, uh, these supply chains as quickly as, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act are, asks for. And I think that's going to create a lot of at least short, medium-term problems, um, and I think we'll end up slowing the transition as a result. Um, and I also don't think that everything can be handled through straightforward competition. I think there are also elements of the sort of climate change issue that require coordination, even cooperation, um, really depending on sort of which area you're talking about. And when it comes to the people who are worst affected by climate change, also the people who contributed least to the problem, um, Competition can benefit them, you know, uh, countries in the global south, people who uh, don't have any infrastructure to speak of. They're not talking about transitions, but just looking for investment in electricity infrastructure in the first place, for example. Uh, Competition can really benefit those countries if it's driving down prices and, you know, um, uh, creating, uh, you know, situations in which they can hedge between great powers and so on. It can also really be destructive if um, it ends up... uh, leading to very um, competitive kind of great power politics that doesn't, for example, think about the solidarity that's desperately needed around loss and damage, climate finance, adaptation finance, all these really you know, big issues that come up at every UN climate talks and sort of get um, politicized and kind of thrown around by, by great powers, um, but not necessarily sort of taken seriously. Although one might hope. So, I'm, I mean, I suppose I often think about you know, I, I don't want there to be any, I mean, open conflict between the US and China would be the worst thing that could possibly happen for all of us right now. But at the same time, I think the rise of China sort of shows one of the problems with the unipolar moment. So say sort of from 1990 to the mid 2000s, growth in Africa, absolute nightmare, actually from the 80s as well, when the Soviet Union was declining, absolute nightmare, because the Americans can say my way or the highway. And the African countries have absolutely no nev- leverage because there's nowhere else they can go for investment. The rise of China means that those African nations can say, well, America, if you don't want to invest in our country on, on on our terms, we can go to China. They can play off the great powers against each other and get a much better deal than when there was only one single power. And does it, I mean, I, I don't follow the COP processes close enough to know if this is the case, but I know, you know, the Western countries have, have really lacked impetus and they've broken their promises when it came to the loss and damage money that they were going to be giving to the global south but does the you know the threat of chinese influence mean that the west is more likely to to invest in developing countries than they otherwise would have been it certainly should and i think it is uh, in in cases it can it can be part of the argument that swings western countries to start leading by example or to start 
trying to retain some lost moral standing that they otherwise wouldn't have. But as it stands, yeah, I don't think the rich countries have any <laughs> kind of um, grounds on which to take a sort of moral high ground at the UN talks. Because as you say, you know, since, um, uh, you know, before Paris, they'd promised $100 billion um, uh, dollars in climate finance that hasn't been recognised, hasn't been realised. Um, those sort of big targets and promises need to be recognized there needs to be uh you know united states and uk and europe that um, really stands firm on things like the loss and damage funds and and adaptation funds and so on um in order to credibly then be able to um point to china and say well you can't stand in for the global south and for the developing world because you're actually the world's largest emitter which is the which has always been the the um the problem with the UN climate talks um, has been this issue of you know who really gets to who counts as a developing country who gets to speak for the global south countries how do those blocks kind of break down and you get these kind of emerging uh, blocks and realignments at various points for example small island states sort of stepping up and saying we're the ones who are really on the front line of climate change um, you know large emitters like China and India can sort of play as the global south, but actually they're hiding behind us and, and, and we're the ones facing an existential threat and they need to take on, um, you know, greater responsibility. But those um, actors can only really feel emboldened to do that in a context where they're actually seeing something in, um, uh, in return for their, uh, for their alliance, say, with, uh, with rich countries. So there's a, it's, it's a really complicated kind of dynamics that, that starts to play out. Does China care what we do, you know, on climate? So I suppose one of the 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 implications, so we started this show with these clips of sort of right-wing pundits saying, why aren't protesters protesting Xi Jinping? Why are they protesting Rishi Sunak? And I suppose the implication there is that China China's emissions matter more than the UK's, which, you know, they do. I don't think that's a good moral argument, but in terms of practical, the future of humanity is going to depend much more on what Xi Jinping does than what Rishi Sunak does. But I suppose the other implication is what Xi Jinping does has nothing to do with what Rishi Sunak does. And, you know, in response, you know, people on the left always says, no, we should be setting an example. We should be showing global leadership. I mean, is Xi Jinping looking at what a small country like the UK does and says, oh, well, if they're building more coal, I mean, we're not building more coal, are we? If, if they're building more um, oil fields or opening more oil fields, then that gives us license to do the same. Or is he just like, I, I do not care what these small European countries are doing. Chinese policy is set in China. I think... The UK does need to lead by example because, um, because, like I say, we have an outsized role still in the UN system, in the Bretton Woods system, um, uh, because we were the hosts of COP26. Um, and we also have a historic responsibility to do that because of our historical emissions, um, along with you know, most of the kind of rich countries. Our emissions are still up there. The you know, carbon dioxide has a, has a very long um, life, sort of unlike a lot of other major sort of global collective action problems in that we are actually talking about the historic emissions of the industrial era. Um, so we, you know, have a real responsibility. But to actually answer the question, no, I don't think, um, you know, Xi Jinping um, is that concerned about UK domestic climate policy or indeed um, the United Kingdom that much. I think um, they do look at the United States 
um, and really care about the relationship with the United States, really care about those kinds of bilateral um, progress or not, um, US-China relations will continue to, to matter and they'll continue to underpin a lot of the progress or not on, on the climate. To a lesser extent, EU-China relations sometimes can kind of balance off against that. And to the extent that we coordinate with the EU still, um, maybe that matters. But no, I don't, th- I don't think Britain has, has um, much uh, it can do about it. I suppose to cash out that, so you said China-US relations obviously matter to Xi Jinping. But in terms of the practical impact on the environment, so if Donald Trump gets elected um, at the next presidential election, and again, he you know he won't be able to immediately remove America from the Paris Agreement because you have to give four years notice. I don't know if they plan that precisely for the circumstances of someone like Donald Trump getting elected in America, um, but he would presumably announce that he's going to remove America from the Paris Agreement. Um, he would, I imagine, you know, I, I wouldn't put it past him to give licenses to loads new coal, etc. If the United States does that, would that change China's domestic policy when it comes to coal? I don't think it would directly. I think it. Um, I think it would be a disaster for the kind of global coordination that's needed around those big goals. Around you know, what well, we pledged to try and get to um, to not breach one point five, which we need to do. You know, really need to halve global emissions over the next decade uh, in order to do that. Um, at, as it stands, even on the you know Paris Agreement um, targets, if we meet, uh, if if we were to meet all of the the policies that were pledged, we'd still be on track for what two two point four two point five. So in terms of really ratcheting up UN sentiment, all of these kinds of big um, uh, coordinating mechanisms that I think do matter, then imperfect, but they do matter. Then yeah, it would be a dis- disaster because you know uh, because a uh, you know a re-elected Trump would surely kind of. Um, further undermine any kind of multilateral pro- uh, progress on climate. So I think it does matter to that extent. But no, I don't. I, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I don't actually think that's what determines policy in China. I do think that China's own nationally self-interested reasons are what's driving it away from investing in you know nineteenth-century technology that is, I think, in terminal decline. I suppose. What, I suppose what I'm getting at here is, you know, you say coordination does matter but it won't really affect chinese policy as so in what in what sense does coordination matter what what's the what's the practical impact of sort of like agreements between the us and china and you know even the cop process even these un agreements is it actually the case that climate policy like most policy is a result of domestic politics and the international agreements are sort of nice to have but not that impactful when it comes to the actual practical decisions that are made about you know energy production and and, and national economies I think it matters. Um, I think it matters as part of a kind of, you know, the Paris Agreement is this sort of weird hybrid type of agreement where it's not entirely bottom up, it's not entirely top down. You know, the Kyoto Protocol that was its predecessor was this completely unworkable, as it turned out, but very utopian kind of top down system that had a, you know, global carbon budget that was then sort of broken down by by countries effectively. Um, instead, you have this process where countries put in what they can politically feasibly do, and then you use a kind of global stock tape system to try to ratchet it up. As it stands, this is you know imperfect and difficult, but I do think it's still a decent aspiration, and I think it matters somewhat. Um, but I think it matters much more desperately in the poorest countries who really need the kind of support that's channeled through um, the UN, or at least with the encouragement of these kind of UN systems. So you've got things like so-called 
uh, just energy transition partnerships in South Africa that's helping to invest in the transition away from coal. There's something similar happening in Indonesia. So in some of the, I guess, large emerging economies, um, interesting financial instruments being kind of managed, at least on the sidelines of these UN processes, and in some of the world's poorest countries that are desperately going to need finance for loss and damage. It's really, again, the UN process that matters, and I think it's going to be a lifeline. So that's sort of why I guess I really hold on to that those multilateral agreements as being important. But no, I don't think they're what determines what's happening in China's five-year plan. Um, I think uh, there there are longer-term, bigger drivers there. And I suppose let's talk about the global South and China's influence. You touched on it a, a bunch of times, but let's focus on this issue of of coal power. So I know you know China got really positive headlines in 2021 saying we're no longer going to invest in in coal power plants abroad. And I think they had been the main funder, right, of, of, of coal power. We've been talking a lot in this discussion about how China has said what they want to do is build out the new before winding down the old. They see coal as sort of key to their energy security and their national interest. Were there developing countries that are a bit pissed off when China said, oh, we're going to keep investing in coal in our country, but we're going to stop investing in it abroad because we really care about our national security, but we don't really care about the national security of, of countries in, in the global south? Were there, was there some resentment built up about that? Well, it's it's yeah, it's complicated. There certainly was a lot of um, of resentment and pushback in different contexts. I mean, so since twenty thirteen, um, you know, China started talking about something called the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, this big initiative to invest in trade and infrastructure um, uh, corridors through Central Asia and then to Africa. Latin America, pretty much the whole world kind of got um, drawn into this broader framework, but it never really existed as a single master plan. There isn't really something you can point to as the Belt and Road Initiative. What there was, was an underlying need to find new markets for overcapacity and creating that kind of escape valve for all these um, industries that were saturated essentially meant finding ways for some of these um polluters that were no longer welcome in China to uh, to find markets that were more favorable. Um, and it risked certainly replicating what people call, call the pollution haven hypothesis, which is arguably how countries like the United Kingdom, uh, you know, cleaned up in terms of pollution was that we exported manufacturing to countries with more lax environmental regulations and more willingness to deal with polluting and energy intensive processes. Um, so th there was a fear, basically, that this is what would play out and this is all the Belt and Road Initiative would be. And it's certainly the case that it's led to investment in coal and you know some of these other um, industries overseas. By 2021, um, when uh, Xi Jinping announced on the on the anniversary of the um, uh, of the dual carbon goals um, uh, uh, announcement that they would um, phase out coal, it had become really unprofitable. So, you know, coal, as I mentioned, is just not, it's increasingly an unprofitable industry, especially if you count on increasing sort of climate policies coming into effect and pricing uh, carbon as it, as it should be. Um, it's not really going to be feasible to keep locking in these new uh, coal plants overseas, even if there are Chinese industries that want to. Um, and as a result, you've seen a lot of Policy making in China in an attempt to try to turn around that kind of juggernaut, which isn't easy actually. Um, there's a lot of Chinese overseas, you know, companies that were sort of moving ahead with trying to, in, you know, invest in coal plants overseas, and then being overturned by 
um, either by popular opposition or some cases even it seems by Chinese embassies in those countries saying we don't want to be associated with this project or this project was you know unprofitable and so on. So you get a lot of again sort of push and pull and discomfort and not really monolithic and decision making system. When she made that pledge in 2021, he actually said two things. A very terse statement, but he said two things. One was we're going to stop building coal overseas. Um, and the other was we're going to invest in new renewable energy infrastructure in the global south. Um, that second one, in a way, is more interesting um, because it was, a, I think, essentially a sort of starting gun on this new competition between China and, and the United States on uh, who gets to build out that infrastructure. I think we would have seen more competition and more investment um, then in the in the coming months if it wasn't for what happened then months later, which was. Um, uh, the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the way that that again destabilized global energy markets um, and generally world trade and supply chains and so on. I actually think had that not played out and had the economic effects it then did, including sort of macroeconomic effects, we probably would see greater investment now and greater uh, kind of competition in you know global south countries where where China is invested in new projects. As it turns out, instead what we've seen is just a um, a, a real fall in investment across the board. Um, you know, China's not investing in steel and coal and cement, whatever, overseas, because it's not really investing in much at all. Um, you know, there's some headlines saying, well, this is the end of the Belt and Road and so on. And the Belt and Road has actually been renamed now as the Global Development Initiative. But I think more... Oh, okay, more, they just quietly renamed it. Yeah, it's quietly been renamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there's something called the... Glo- there's actually now, I think, three projects, something called the Global Development Initiative, Global... Uh, security initiative and the global civilization initiative or something it's some some big new uh, kind of push uh, to, to to rebrand what is essentially i think still going to be needed which is a kind of um you know what uh people have called i guess a, a like a geographic fix for a problem that um every growing um uh, economy um, looks for at a certain point, which is an outlet for its overcapacity and its industries. Like, how do you how do you do that? Uh, you know, according to um, you know, uh, Lenin's theory, that's what that's what feeds imperialism. That is the that's the the sort of driver of of, of global imperialism. Is this the equivalent of that? Not not exactly, but it is the same. It's the same base driver. It's like what would you do with this spare capacity? What do you do with the surplus? Uh, what do you do with foreign exchange reserves and the rest that are sitting there? Yeah, so it wasn't so much sort of to, to to sort of go back to my question. It wasn't so much that there was these countries in the global south saying, you know, there was China saying, please pitch us ideas. What do you want for development? And then all these countries in the global south said, you know, what, we want some coal power plants. It was more that there were companies in China who were sort of saying we're desperate for a new market. We need to build some coal power plants because there's overcapacity in China and this is what we do. Um, So we're going to offer them coal power plants. And it wasn't the case that sort of they proactively chose it. They'd be just as happy with with solar or wind or whatever. Well, so if you talk to Chinese policymakers, they'll say, "We're we're pragmatic and we just respond to market signals. We're not like the West that goes around lecturing developing countries on, on the terms of their development. We're not obsessed with whether you're sustainable and you're corrupt or not and so on. We don't interfere in your internal politics. We just invest in what you want. And if you say that it's mark, you know, if it's profitable and so on for you to invest in coal, we've got the technology here you go. That's the that's the pitch. Um and there's a element of truth to it. That, you know, there are definitely many um, you know, emerging economies and so on that desperately want investment and see it as 
conventionally profitable and helpful to to, to build a coal plant or some kind of uh, polluting infrastructure. There's also you know another side to that, which is you know sometimes these deals are made in very collusive fashion. Sometimes it's not in the best you know better longer term interest to invest in 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 you know a coal plant which is going to become unprofitable. It's going to have real um, you know, desperately bad uh, air pollution impacts and so on uh, as, as a result of, of being, you know, poor quality uh, infrastructure. All of these things may may exist at the same time. But I think there's an element of truth to it, which is also to say that it, it does also come down to the agency of all kinds of different, you know, countries in the global south who obviously don't think in the same way, obviously have different leaderships, have different politics, um, and also affected by, as you say, that that increasing geopolitical competition between China and uh, China and the West and other investors and so on. Um, and yeah, so it, it really depends across the board. But there have been some landmark cases. In Kenya, for example, you had the Lamu coal plant, which was a, um, a proposed coal plant. In the end, every other investor dropped out other than a Chinese bank, and it was going to be built essentially with Chinese finance and technology then was overturned thanks to a very large and sustained civil society campaign in Kenya, um, uh, including um, legal cases and you know, sort of climate litigation. Um, and in the end, also the Chinese embassy kind of wiped its hands of it and said, you know, we, we don't want to be involved in this case either, probably because they'd seen the scale of the opposition, the extent to which it posed a kind of social reputational risk and but so you know on associated the, with Chinese investment. Do you know if the Kenyans got something else instead? Well, yeah, funnily enough, there, there, there are large solar plants, not anywhere near the scale in terms of gigawatts, but there's um, uh, there's, a, there's a big... Um, anywhere near the scale of the proposed coal plant, you mean? No, no, sorry, yeah. No, not at the scale of the, of, the, of the proposed coal plant, but there is now the first large-scale utility-grade solar plant in Kenya. It was built with Chinese technology and Chinese finance, big turnkey project real, um, called Garissa, in fact. It's, it's um, absolutely huge. It sits actually alongside the Standard Gauge Railway project, which is also this massive railway project across Kenya, which you know, had some environmental controversy associated with it in terms of building through national parks and so on, but was um, still in you know, a big part of infrastructure upgrading that's been financed by uh, by China and East Africa, where, as you say, it's sort of playing out in the way you describe, where a lot of emerging economies are taking advantage of these new geopolitical openings, but also sort of technological openings to think about how do we place ourselves in these new technologies. It's going to be a massive rush for um, the inputs for some of these new technological production uh, uh, facilities, lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper. Much of this is is sourced across Africa, Latin America. There's a lot of positioning now around who gets to build, uh, who gets to not only provide the raw materials here, but who gets to build out these technologies. Um, and um, can you avoid, for example, the kind of traditional colonial extraction models that were associated with previous um, rushes for for resources and does in the context of kind of greater geopolitical um, competition between China and the US these countries just get ground between the gears of great power competition or do they find an opportunity to actually you know um, carve out a new political space or a new technological space or a new kind of political economy in which they actually have some power and agency in in the decision over who gets to build out the sort of new industrial uh, sort of products that are going to uh, underpin growth. It's, it's, it's annoying me, it slipped my mind. I was reading, I think it was in the FT, about it was a government, maybe Indonesia, who sort of banned the export of unrefined uranium or whatever. And so countries could only get their uranium if 
it was also refined in that country. And then that gives them leverage and then they develop an industry. So they're not just exporting the lowest value. So we're seeing that, in, seeing that in Chile, in Zimbabwe, in, in, um, in Indonesia. So in Indonesia with nickel, uh, in Zimbabwe, I think with, with, um, with lithium, much as in Chile, all in slightly, in slightly different cases. Yeah, so lithium but in, does make more sense than uranium. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, <laughs> uranium also depends what you think about nuclear. Um, but, um, with, um, yeah, with, with, uh, Indonesia, they they really have the main global sort of reserves of, of nickel. Um, it's not going to be needed in the sa- to the same degree as something like lithium. It's also not as plentiful, um, and um, Indonesia sits on most of the supply. It's needed for the batteries and so on that we're um, uh, you know going to underpin sort of sustainable mobility. Um, and Indonesia now talks about setting up its own cartel. Uh, for for nickel supply to rival sort of OPEC and so on. In Zimbabwe, they're talking about how can we harness the benefits of extraction by, you know, banning exports um, and essentially saying, look, to, you know, Tesla or, or the Chinese, you know, counterpart equivalent, um, rather than just extracting these materials, invest in our, you know, battery supply chain. We want to move up the value chain and, and create an industrial base for this. That might be more polluting um, than just, you know, sending it back to China, but it's also arguably more equitable in terms of, you know, sharing the, the benefits. Um, in the case of Chile, they're largely nationalizing their infrastructure around lithium extraction, um, again, in, in response to this increasing sort of global boom, essentially positioning for a big EV boom um, and renewable energy shift. It's not the same as oil or previous generations of fossil fuel infrastructure and so on. It's not going to have the same dynamics, but I do think it's really important and really interesting kind of frontier of of, of what, I guess, the kind of um, multipolar world kind of geopolitics are going to look like. Okay, let's end by looking to the future. Lots of headlines at the moment. China's economy is slowing down, um, partly because of a housing bust, um, I think. Um, so I suppose in this country, when it it's often, well, at least the conservatives anyway, often say, well, we were planning, actually Labour is saying it as well, we were planning this incredible green industrial revolution, but you know, everyone's now more concerned about inflation and the cost of living. So we're going to reprioritize. We're going to talk less about green stuff, talk more about bread and butter issues. Might we see the same thing going on in China where they say, well, we did have these very ambitious climate goals, but look, the economy's stalling. We need to focus on the here and now in the short term. Might that happen? My sense is quite strongly that that medium long term, those big goals around decarbonisation are really central political economic narrative that are driving the direction of China's economy, even as it tries to negotiate arguably really difficult headwinds, both domestic economic headwinds, geopolit- you know, geopolitical competition, all of the rest of it. It's complicated and I think it will be, it will be quite hard and I think it will see this kind of you know, moments of destabilization. I think longer term, it works for the party state in terms of moving its economy in the direction it wants to, which is to say upgrading from energy intensive polluting manufacturing towards innovation, towards technology leadership. I still think that's really where they want to sort of take the economy. I think it matters for party legitimacy as well. One thing we haven't talked about is that Chinese public for, for you know, the large part do actually also want to see action on 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 the environment, uh, and the party wants to be seen as acting on issues of public concern. Again, you know, we discussed sort of authoritarianism and democracy. It's true they're not responsive to, you know, they're not going to be recalled by the public. However, um, Chinese, you know, p- 
policymakers do actually care about um, uh, about being seen as legitimate. So being seen to act on issues of public concern, being seen to to act on air pollution, which is a really critical social issue in you know, Chinese cities, um, positioning for you know the next wave of growth for of sort of low carbon technologies that will be needed, um, and you know aligning that or, or aligning that with these sort of growing markets around the world where China is well positioned. Um, I think it still makes it sort of a central, medium, long-term goal. I mean, you know, just brief thought on this, you know, China-U.S. competition that we're sort of discussing in the realm of, of say, you know, electric vehicles. In um, in the U.S., they've targeted making a battery with forty percent of materials only coming from the U.S. and areas that have signed free trade agreements with the United States. As it currently stands, this is absolutely impossible because China has been so effective at building out the um, uh, the whole supply chain from um, you know primary upstream production mining to all of the really um, very um, expensive and energy intensive midstream processing, refining processes up to the sort of uh, the, the technology and, and the you know, car building and the rest of it. Replacing that is near impossible. It's really a, a, an enormous lift and China is very well positioned. So I do think that, you know, despite, you know, difficult economic headwinds and, you know, I can't make any predictions about what the, uh, what the Chinese economy is going to look like in a few years or indeed any, anywhere in the, in the global economy. I do think green industrial strategy is kind of where um, governments are getting to, regardless of the, you know, particular political shade. Like, I, I think, honestly, we would be seeing similar um, acts to the IRA under a Republican administration. It would just be seen as what it is, which is positioning um, for industrial competition with China. So the Republicans would just message it more as an anti-Chinese thing, whereas Biden messages it more as a pro-green thing. Sure, we'd see it as, as national conservatism. Perfect. Um, that was incredibly interesting. I feel like a lot, I know a lot more um, about China and climate change. Um, definitely one to come back to, especially, yes, a third of global emissions. But what was it a fifth of global population? Yes, something, something like, like a fifth of the global population. Um, yeah, I mean, between between them, China and the United States account for about 40% of the world's emissions. So we can't really um, have any solution that doesn't include those great powers. But that doesn't mean that all the smaller states add up to 60%. So you can't say, oh, well, it doesn't matter what the 60% do as long as the 40% bring it down. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's an obvious point. That's the obvious point that Ian Dale and that GB News host in the introduction missed. Um, Sam Giao, it's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you today. Thank you for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. <laughs>